Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Thank you all for coming. My name is Margot Landman, as you can very well see. I am Senior Director for Education Programs here at the National Committee, and it is a great pleasure to welcome Roseanne Lake, who has written this book. We have copies of it outside for sale, and I do recommend that you pick it up. It is a very interesting read. Rather than our usual format of the author speaking for a while and then opening it up to questions, we're going to have a bit of a conversation. But there are perhaps some leftover women in the room, so I would particularly encourage you to join in if you're interested in doing so. No pressure. You don't have to. and of course, other people as well. So, why did you write the book? Ah, why did I write Leftover in China? Um, Well, first of all, I was surrounded by leftover women. (laughs) Um, I got to China in 2009, and I started working at a television station where most of my colleagues were young, women, um, 23, 24, uh, and they were working at the station. They were the producers and the editors, and they were in charge. And this was surprising to me. I didn't know much about China. I kind of got went there on a lark. I was only supposed to say three months because I thought post-Olympics it would be a good idea to pick up some Mandarin, and as a recent grad in journalism, it would be a great place to try to pitch some stories to good publications, right, rather than serve coffee as an intern in New York City. Uh, and about a month in, I bought a Diandongche, a hot orange electric Vespa, that I named Funda, Fanta, like the soft drink. And Fanta was the reason I stayed five years. <laughs> it, was, it was an electric Vespa that kept me in China. Because riding around on this Vespa, I was navigating through Beijing's tentacular traffic. And the 14 million people or the 20 million people, depending on what time of day you're in the city, um, who inhabit it. And I was riding side by side with you know men from Xinjiang who had these flatbed trucks and they were selling apricot cakes, which any of you who have been to Beijing knows happens. And vendors, you know, peasants from the countryside selling giant stacks of bai cai. And then, you know, on the other side you had these dizzying towers going up. Right? I would go home for a couple of weeks over Christmas, and there was a new high-rise there. China was a fascinating place to be. And there was something very enthralling about reporting from what was becoming the world's ultimate superlative. Um, and so I, you know, as a result, as an excuse to stay, I started working at this television network, and all of my colleagues were left over. And I didn't know they were leftover women until after my first Tunjie. So I, I decided I was going to stay in Beijing and, and, you know, get the full feel of all the fireworks. And after the first day, I said, no way. I'm going to lose an ear and Fanta's going to, you know, have a tire explode with these fireworks. I went to Yunnan. I motorbiked around Yunnan, came back to the office and noticed that all of my colleagues were in a very different mood. They weren't as chipper as they usually were. And I asked around to a senior member of staff, actually thinking that there was something wrong at the company. And she said, oh, no, they're just upset because they're not married. And of course, none of this made any sense to me. These women were 23 or 24. Many of them were the first ones to have gotten a college education. They were bilingual. They were working at an international news network. We were broadcasting on Time Warner Cable in New York City. And they were called leftover. And China, as I know now, is a land of many contradictions, but this was a very big contradiction. These women, you know, unlike their unsavory name, which I think some of you know is a direct translation from the Chinese shengnu, which means leftover, and sheng is the prefix that you would get in shengcai, or leftover food, so it really is a very unpalatable um, association, but they were leftover because they were approaching their sell-by dates of 27, after which in China you're considered less valuable 
on the marriage market um, because it's considered 27 is considered an ideal age to have children and so if you're not married by then you won't have you know healthy bouncy babies for your <laughs> for your parents to swaddle and spoil and, and all of those things so the short answer is I was surrounded by them and I was also very inspired by them and curious to know why despite how much promise I saw in them they were referred to by this very um, unpleasant term. So they go home for Twinjia and get all this pressure from their families. There's also official pressure, the All-China Women's Federation and other organizations and news outlets calling them leftover. You seem to think that there's far more pressure or significant pressure from the families than from the state. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I remember um, there was an All China Women's Federation survey that had come out, and it was explaining different levels of, of leftover. And I had asked some friends about it, and they said, we've never seen this survey, but what does it say? You know, like they were curious, but it wasn't something that was impacting them. Um, my understanding is the All China Women's Federation, it's a very powerful, very well-respected arm of the government, essentially, um, but it, it wields most of its power in rural areas where it helps with microfinancing and and it's very important in urban areas women kind of shake these things off a little bit more and they're not as involved in politics or, or what the all china women's federation is doing my sense is that you know for for the vast majority of them the all of their pressure comes from from parents and from grandparents from some colleagues from taxi drivers um, everyone feels like they can ask you you know what your status is and then react with sufficient dismay when you tell them you're not married all right. These women from your description are well-educated, sophisticated. They have their own money from their own income. We know that there are also, although they're not called this, a lot of leftover men. Where do they fit into this picture? Good question. Um, so the leftover men are known as guanggun, or bare branches, which is not a great term either. And when I first started meeting my leftover colleagues, my first question to them was, wait a minute, doesn't China have a surplus of men as a result of the one-child policy and the ensuing sex-elective abortions that happened in families where they absolutely wanted to have a son? And I kind of got blank stares. And I'm thinking, you know, is a part of this, ladies, are you just being lazy? Because with 20 million more men, the Chinese Academy of Sciences had already come out with this statistic that there would be 20 million more men of marriage age by 2020 in China than women. And I thought, where are these men? And why can't my colleagues find them? And initially, I thought, you know, maybe I can pitch a story to Marie Claire about China being an untapped dating oasis. And what if I can find <laughs> these men? What if they're in a hangar somewhere and, you know, I can just let them loose and my colleagues will suddenly have access to all of these men? And it turns out that they were just in the countryside. So if you look at the geographic breakdown of where, of how China's gender imbalance played out, it becomes quite apparent that, so the natural gen ratio at birth is about 100 women for every 100, 105 men. That's the average in nature all around the world. Um, and you see in places like Beijing and Shanghai, top tier cities, the, the gender imbalance never really exceeded 114 men to 100 women. But of course, there are rural areas of China, poorer areas of China, where that imbalance escalated to 130, 140, 150, 60. There were some as high as 170, as I report in the book. And so what becomes apparent is that the vast majority of these surplus men were born in rural areas where tradition dictated that families wanted a son and where the needs of the farm also required that, you know, they wanted boys to, to look after the farms. Whereas, um, you kind of see a very unexpected and very fine silver lining to the one-child policy because of the girls who were born, of these girls who survived the one-child policy, many of them were born in urban areas to parents who kind of said, all right, a daughter, we'll keep her. We don't have a son. She doesn't have a brother. We'll probably just raise her as if she were our son. 
we're going to give her all the family resources and we're going to push her to succeed. We're going to make sure that she's educated because she's everything we have. And if we have a family business, she's going to inherit it because who else are we going to give it to? And it was this sort of demographic quirk that led to a large portion of these so-called leftover women, right? Because they were raised with unprecedented access to education and family resources. And part of that is due to the unique circumstances of their birth, but also the fact that they were born at the time of China's economic reforms, right? They grew up during a time of tremendous prosperity for China. And they benefited from it in ways that men in rural areas of China certainly did not, right? So you have this very well-prepared um, population of, of women who are educated and who have options that their mothers and their grandmothers never had. And so um, in addition to marriage being one of their priorities, they have travel and learning other languages and maybe a graduate degree. And so it changed the timelines for marriage and motherhood in ways that Chinese culture has sort of struggled to keep up with, right? The economy has grown at a very quick pace, but it almost seems as if the culture's behind sort of clamoring to recalibrate to this new economic and demographic reality. But even some of the well-educated men that you quote have a rather dim view of these women, quote, a beautiful girl can only be beautiful as long as she is useless and completely lost and destroyed. Or we want a woman who is, and I couldn't make this up, <laughs> like plain yogurt so that we can flavor them as we like. Where do these ideas come from? <laughs> the plain yogurt is one of my favorites. Um, this was a, a gentleman who I had lunch with because a friend said, if you want to understand what it's like dating in China as a so-called leftover woman, you know, you should have lunch with this guy. He'll give you, he'll open your view of, of what this is like. Um, honestly, I was very grateful to this man who described his preferences in women to me because it, things made sense. I mean, in addition to saying he wanted women who were like plain yogurts, he said, you know, I am the breadwinner. And a woman who has too many ideas before breakfast is just, that's a headache to me. I know where I want to live. I know where I want to work. And I want to make those decisions. And I'm not very interested in making them with anyone else. And so, you know, if I can just find someone who will come along for the ride, that'll save me a lot of energy. My job is stressful enough. I have to make enough difficult decisions. Why do I want to go home and subject myself to sort of further scrutiny and debate? Um, and I actually was interviewing that man. Someone in, in another event said, is that man married? Like, was anyone willing to marry him? And I said, actually, the, the afternoon I interviewed him, he was going to take the high-speed train back to Tianjin for his bachelor party. And I was really seriously wondering if he was engaged to a woman or a dairy cow, given his preferences. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's the attitude of some men in China. Not all of them, but there are some. Okay. Um, you conclude the book, and then we'll open it up for discussion, on a, what struck me as surprisingly optimistic note, saying that these women are the future of China, and they are going to do really good things for China. How do you get from leftover women and yogurt and um, bare branches to these are the saviors of China. Tremendous optimism, <laughs> especially given uh, the announcement we had over the weekend where it looks like Xi Jinping will be in power for much longer than expected. If you've looked at the people who surround him, um, men are very much at the helm of all of that, right? But I was tremendously inspired by these women. And I think they are an integral part of China's future because right now China has two big challenges. One is maintaining the growth of its economy. And as we see in, in other countries that I draw parallels with in the book, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, other East Asian tiger economies where economies took off very much in a very short period of time, and changed what was the possibilities for women. We see in Japan, for example, that women have not been integrated into the workforce as they have been in China. And as a result, as Christine Lagarde has been saying for years, Japan's economy is not what it, what it should be. It's growing by about 2% a year, if that. 
And a large part of that is because half of its population checks out of the workforce shortly after having a child and stays out of it for about 13 years. And even before that, um, knowing that they will eventually do that, women don't even reach their full educational potential. They'll start studying a clerical track and then start working in a major company, marry someone in the company or somewhere else, and, th and then they step out. South Korea, this problem isn't as acute, but you also see that it's very difficult, as it is everywhere, to manage, for women to manage, um, you know, a rewarding, high-powered career and also taking care of everything you need to take care of as the mother. In South Korea, it's well known that there are many after-school activities that children need to do, many, many every evening, right? And mothers are seen as the sole, the, the, they're in command. They're supposed to look after all of this. And so you also don't have women in the workforce in the ways that you should have them in South Korea. China's a different story. They have this one tremendous advantage where this, this zeal that Chinese parents have, or grandparents have, for taking care of children means that there's automatic health care, um, child care, right? Women can go back into the workforce pretty easily because there's a mom, there are probably two moms and two, grand, two dads who are very happy to you know, take that baby off their hands, take it to a park, and you know, <laughs> walk it around with all the other babies in the park because this is what you do when you retire from China. Although I would say some of this is changing. Somebody asked me, what can I do to alleviate some of the pressure that I'm feeling for my parents to have a kid? And I said, sign your mom up for this new karaoke app where you can sing and compete with other people for, for votes and for, for likes and, and actually for some hongbao. And a friend's mom did it and she's become like a KTV superstar. And every day she wakes up and she records herself and she checks in with her fans and she responds to them. And my friend's like, she's left me alone, it's wonderful. So I would encourage, you know, cultivate extracurricular activities in your parents to alleviate some of these pressures. Um, but for those who don't, I mean, there's this, this built-in healthcare. Um, and there's also the economic reality that it's very hard to survive on a single owner household in, in China, right? And because women are so educated and they're coming to, to relationships with resources, you don't see the same problems that you see in other countries. So I'm more optimistic along those lines. And why I argue that you know these women are a very critical part of, of Chinese, the second part of why I would argue they're a very important of China's future, um, there's now a two-child policy in China, right? That wasn't because the Chinese government said, oh, let's give all the women more reproductive freedoms. It was because China's birth rate for a very long time has been below replacement rate. And it's, a, it's an aging population. The average age in China, it's, it's not 27, or I can't remember the exact number, like it was in the 90s. It's a much older place now. And that means more elderly people who need looking after by an extremely smaller population of young people paying taxes and being able to support them. So essentially, China needs babies. Who is going to have them for you, if not your women? And I would just say, do whatever you can. You know, dear China, if you don't want to become Japan, do whatever you can to harness every productive member of your economy to be able to reach their full educational and economic potential, but also, you know, have family lives and, and produce the babies that you need to remain the ultimate superlative from a population perspective, but also an economic one. No pressure, ladies, but you know, I think it's all on you. One more thing before we open it up. Um, some of you may be aware that there's been a controversy swirling around the book um, by and on behalf of a scholar who wrote a book in 2014, or published a book in 2014, about China's leftover women who accuses Roseanne of borrowing heavily from her ideas or her books. Um, how do you respond to these accusations? Well, first of all, I've become far more famous in China circles than I've ever expected to be as a result of this controversy. Um, and I thank you for having me here. And I also think that to anyone who reads both books, it would be quite clear um, that there are not there is not borrowed material. We actually take a very different approach. Um, some of the claims have been very, very far-fetched. Um, one of my favorites was um, I was in San Francisco giving a book talk, and it was at the Bindery, which is in the Old Vic Theater. And there's a marquee outside of this theater, and they put my name on it, along with the names of a few other authors as upcoming authors. Bookstore in San Francisco. The next morning, I woke up to tweets 
saying that um, there was a huge Manhattan billboard with my name on it and um, that this was a result of the corporate greed of my publisher and because I was white this had happened. Um, so I would just urge you to read books, the books on your own, um, to make your own calls. I've learned a lot about social media. Things can be manipulated and exaggerated and hyperbolized in many ways. Um, I wouldn't be here if, if there, were any, there was any sense of foul play. And Norton, my publisher, stands behind me, as does The Economist, my employer. Comments, questions, thoughts? Has this book been published in China? It's coming out. Is it? In August, in Mandarin. Um, it's not out yet, so it's hard to say, but um, Chinese friends who have read it are very eager to share it with their mothers. So I think that's, <laughs> I think that's a good sign. Um, the rights have also been sold in France, so there will be a French edition as well. Are you concerned that the Chinese edition might leave things out? That's a very fair question. Um, it's being translated right now, and um, it went to auction. It was quite popular in China. There were five houses bidding on it, which is a very promising sign and actually quite rare. Um, but that was on proposal. That was before the book was done. So they have the whole version now. I've not been contacted about any, any omissions, um, but I'll be in China in two weeks, and I'll certainly be addressing those questions when I'm there. So, so who's publishing it? It's Beijing Stanway Books. Stanway? Stanway books, yeah. They're a smaller house, but they're specialized in books about women. So they were the house that put out the Chinese version of Gloria Steinem's On the Road. So I think I ended up in a good house. Uh, we'll see what they do to the text, but so far so good. <laughs> and I'll be back in August for, for the Chinese version. Family. Um, I'm curious, have the leftover women decide to become single moms because that's been a trend here in the US? If only they could be. Um, in China, if you have a child out of wedlock, uh, that child will have it very hard to exist, essentially, because your hukou or your residence permit comes through your father. Um, and so you would either need to buy that child. Well, first you'd need to pay a very high fee uh, for having a child out of wedlock, and then you'd probably need to buy it a fake hukou so that it could access basic things like being able to go to school and whatnot. There is a trend of um, Chinese women coming to the U.S. for egg freezing. Um, because this is also something that's not possible in China unless you are A, married, and, two, and B, suffering from an illness that impedes your fertility. That's the only way that you can have your eggs frozen in China. Um, and so many women come here. And a friend described it as common as a manicure. <laughs> Friends will do it together. They will get their eggs frozen as sort of an insurance policy for the future. Um, so that's, I mean, and that's something that, you know, in terms of U.S.-China relations, um, those children, I mean, many of them are, you know, they're, they're being born from, you know, donors at sperm banks here. If, if those eggs are used, you could end up with a population of, you know, way more American kids who end up or have, you know, who have American citizenship living in China being raised by Chinese moms. Um, so that's something we should maybe think about in the future as this becomes more and more common. If, you know, those eggs stay frozen or if they're thawed and turned into babies, that means um, American citizens who will later be taken back to China with their moms. Is there data on that? It's still relatively new and I would imagine quite private. Um, but it's, I mean, if you speak to, there's actually a woman who has, um, she came to a book event and she said, I really want to speak to you. I have a, a fertility clinic on Park Avenue and most of my clients are um, very well-to-do Chinese women who are coming here for this procedure. Wow. So maybe not national data, but it's, I know here and, and especially on the West Coast, it's becoming increasingly popular. Shirley? Yeah. Please identify do these, yourself. Do these um, leftover women, do they contemplate a different life in terms of being unmarried? Like some women in, in, in the United States, do they, is there a support system or a group that, that contemplates another, you know, not being married, having, being single and having a career? Right. Um, I mean, one of the things that struck me, and I think one of the reasons so many of these women were willing to talk with me about this, is that there's not, it's not really discussed. Um, I think that's changing since when I first started looking at this topic, uh, namely because there are more and more of these women now. 
right? And and they have more of a voice in media. So if there's a dating company that puts out an ad around Chinese New Year about a dying grandmother who says to her daughter, you must get married before I die, it's my dying wish, there will be uproar. <laughs> you know, women will push back. Um, the same thing happened with an Ikea ad where, um, you know, parents were talking to their daughter and she didn't have anyone and suddenly someone shows up at the door and they're like, we will refurnish your house with Ikea furniture. We're so delighted that you have, you know, a potential husband. And so there's, there's pushback. I mean, these women's voices has be have become louder. I think the main issue is they are, they're trying, they're trying to delay because they're doing other things, the age at which they marry and have children. Um, and overall, marriage rates in China are still quite high. Um, by 39, I think it's something like still less than 5% of women in China remain single. Now that's going to change and that's going to change drastically. The last real census we have is from 2010. So when the next batch of data, there have been micro since, but when that next data comes out, we'll have a much better you know, view into just how many women aren't getting married as a matter of choice, but also as a matter of supply. Remember that manhanger, I never found it. They really are in rural areas. John. Also, sorry, I want to chime in to like piggyback on answering. Could you identify yourself? Yes, I'm getting to it. Yes. I'm answering um, Shirley's question. Um, my name is Oma. Um, I'm with the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, but I actually am also the founder of the Beijing Women's Network. And part of the reason, I think we connected briefly. Um, and I think part of the reason why um, this network was founded in 2014, 15, um, and the reason why we actually founded it was because we realized that there were a lot of expat and local women, even just within Beijing, that exactly had the kind of needed the kind of community support that you identified. Um, and then we started with, um, and you can see the need that goes with it. So I don't actually have the data and the science and, and everything to back of what I've seen, but I can tell you that through just very, very sort of like community organizing, we have been able to grow from like a 20-person sit-down community dinner to right now we have 3,500 plus women from by December last year. Um, so you can see that there's a huge need of that kind of community support, and there are many, many, many groups, even just within Beijing, that do a lot of these types of support, not necessarily identifying the issue of oh, you are a Xiongnu, therefore we're giving you support and that we're connecting together. But I think in general, on a more uh, sort of communal sense of these are women, they have a lot of, um, they face a lot of challenges that men don't face. They face a lot of challenges within this generation of what their parents expect and they don't expect. They face a lot of challenges in the workplace that they themselves don't even know how to deal with because they're maybe the first generation that went to college and are dealing with these um, issues. And um, in general, I think that there are a lot of um, self-organized community groups popping up everywhere that address these issues and that indirectly or directly address that issue of marriage um, that are coming up right now. And it's forming very, very different, um, unique social structures. And a huge part of that has also been social media. Since I started on this, there's now WeChat, right? And just to give an example of how this builds momentum, before I left China in 2014, um, I had a manuscript, like a rough draft of the book done already, but I had this niggling feeling that I did my best to convey these women's stories, but they actually convey them much better than I do, obviously, right? And I wanted to give a live audience the experience of hearing from them as I had heard from them. Um, so I created something called the Leftover Monologues, which is a spin-off of the Vagina Monologues. You're smiling, so you've either seen this or heard of it. Um, which was a spin-off of the Vagina Monologues, and we had 13 men and three women at our first show um, delivering monologues about this idea of leftoverness. And it wasn't it wasn't confined to, to leftover women, it was leftover topics. So things that should be discussed in China, but that don't get discussed. And we started off at a small cafe in Dongsi, and um, we had 100 people show up. And we decided we needed to do it again, and we ended up doing it a total of six times, and people were calling us the leftover and over and over monologues, because um, by our last show, we had 600 people show up in the audience. And this was all through Weixin. It was tapping through, tapping into groups like Lean In, which had been instrumental in helping us get it off the ground. Um, and you could really see the power of social media. I mean, maybe you wouldn't see, yet yeah, you would see it, you would see, you 
you know, numbers gr getting growing in these groups. And when I was first doing it, people said Chinese women aren't going to stand up and tell their stories like this. I mean, I had every woman or every man write their own stories. It was a very personal thing. And these people weren't actors. They were just people who wanted to tell their stories. And I said, maybe not everyone, but surely there are some. And I really wanted an audience to see like this, this word leftover is a total misnomer. These women are funny, they're courageous, and they are handling the pressures that they have, these very irrational pressures, with tremendous grace. And I think a lot of that came across in the play, and it was certainly one of the coolest things I ever got to do. So I have very good was memories of it. Was there any trouble with public security? Believe it or not, I don't know how this worked, um, but we were fine. And actually, there was a reporter whose name I will not mention, but he came to one of the shows and he came back to another one. And I said, oh, you're here again. You really love this play. And he's like, no, I'm just assuming it'll get shut down and I want to break the story. And I was like, right. So having me responsible for 13 men, or 13 women and three men in jail or carried off to the PSB, that's going to be your story? I was very offended and have lost a tremendous amount of respect. <laughs> but no, we were fine. It was also a different climate. It was, and, and you know, we first did it in 2014, and we did it again in 2015, and that was post-Feminist Five. Wei Ting Ting was actually in our show. So one of the five women who was imprisoned in 2015 for trying to raise awareness of sexual harassment on public transportation, um, she was in our original show. And I wasn't living in China in 2015, but I was going back to give a TEDx talk, and the idea was that we would do the play in Beijing again and also in Shanghai. And when news of Wei Ting Ting and the other women being arrested broke, I said, I don't think we should do this. I don't want to be responsible for you know having more women being detained. It was a very big affair. I mean, Hillary Clinton was intervening on their behalf, as was Samantha Power. It was a matter of huge international concern. And the women in the play said, no, we're still going to do it. And I was like, OK, uh, we will do it. Obviously, waiting to, she had already been released, but we didn't have her involved in the play because we didn't want to you know, um, cause further trouble for her. But we did it again. And we were just fine. And it was at the 77th Theater, which seats over 500 people. And we filled that place, and nobody bothered us. I guess I'm not very threatening. <laughs> John? John Lowen from the National Committee. So I've got a two, two questions, I think a short and a long. The short is that certainly in the US, we've seen pejorative terms co-opted by the group itself and turned into a, a, a term of power. And so I'm wondering if, if we're seeing any of that in, in China with the term leftover women. The other question is uh, a close friend of mine uh, told me the story of his marriage where right, he didn't have a Beijing buko and he wanted to stay. So he lined up his dating prospects and married the, you know, when he was when he was ready so he could stay. So the, I'm wondering what your research has shown with the hukou system, how that fits into this, aside from the rural urban imbalance. I understand that. But seems like there are plenty of men who would love to stay in, you fill in the name of the blank of that city, um, who could not as easily without a marriage and a marriage in Okay, both good questions. Um, so for the first one, are leftover women taking back the term? Um, I don't actually think they were that bothered with it in the first place. It's, it's a very strange thing to understand, to, to sort of, to fathom, right? But I think from an early, from early on, it was like these women would, their self-esteem would, would, you know, suffer a blow over Chunjie, over Chinese New Year. But I would ask, you know, is it like this all year? And they'll said, no, we'll be fine in two weeks. Like, we just need, you know, we need to lick our wounds a little bit and recover from this lacquering that we've received as we were home with our parents and surrounded by relatives. But we kind of bounce back. Um, and I think it's kind of understood that, you know, most leftover women are reasonably well-educated. Um, not all of them. It's more a mindset than an actual, you know, uh, boxes that you can tick off, as I argue in the book through characters, you know, one who went to Yale and was born in Beijing and one who was born outside of Harbin and is a Chinese teacher and, you know, shares a, shares a bathroom with eight other women in a very tiny room. She's not your archetypal leftover, but she refuses to get married just because her parents are telling her to. And she does not want to go back to this small city outside of Harbin to marry whoever they present her with and work at the bank where her father's been working for 30 years. She wants to 
teach foreigners in Beijing because although she's never left the country, she meets Japanese students and Korean students and funny Spanish students and me. And so, um, you know, she wants to hang on to that freedom, although it's not all that glorious. Um, it's my sense was, you know, it's it's not it's not anything that it wasn't so much the term. It was the pressure. That, that bothered women. Um, and when you compare it to similar terms, so in Japan, um, the term used to be a Christmas cake for a woman over 25. The idea that, you know, after 25, you're kind of on clearance. And then they very <laughs> charitably raised it to New Year's noodles. So you had time, you had until 31 um, to be considered leftover. Um, so I don't know, I wouldn't say it's a badge of pride, but it's not really sort of like a, anything, it's not as derogatory as, as it sounds. Um, and for your second question, certainly the hookah plays into the search. And it works both ways. I mean, there are parents who have daughters who were born in Beijing or Shanghai and they own property in those places. And they think, well, you know, you have property. Um, you must marry someone from Beijing or Shanghai with an urban hookah just like yours. And he should have a house uh, preferably bigger to ours. Like that's, you know, kind of on paper what's expected. But there are permutations of that. One of the characters in the book, this one from Harbin, her parents are so desperate to get her married that they give up on actually getting her back to Harbin. And they say, okay, we will buy a house for you in Beijing. Uh, it won't be anywhere central because we can't afford that, but this will be our way of increasing your value on the marriage market. Because then maybe a man who can't afford to buy a house because he's not a you know he's not a an, an urban native and he doesn't have the cash he won't have that pressure and he'll be more likely to marry you because he can marry into home not necessarily a hookah but there are permutations along those lines and it is a very big deal because not having an urban hookah but wanting to stay in an urban area is, is not an easy thing to do uh, i'm nina with china institute so um from the interviews you had with those chinese women um, is the mentality of marrying up um, still um, a reason that narrow their choice, um, which make them left over because they want to marry <laughs> someone who is better than those women in terms of wealth or um, is it still existing? Because that's traditional Chinese culture, they do want to marry up. Right. It exists, and I think it exists more on the part of their parents. Um, it's more like, we've given you all these resources, so why would we let you marry down? As for the women themselves, I mean, there were many women, especially in the monologues and then in interviews that I did, who were not impressed by someone who has, you know, a laofangzi right outside of Tiantang Gongyuan, because what, is his, what good is his laofangzi to me? I'm not interested in the fact that he owns property. I'm more interested in this person as a human being. And my sense was that the resistance or the resistance to marriage or, or the, the lack of a rush to get into a relationship just for the sake of being married was more from that than not finding someone who met the criteria. My sense was, and I mean, I guess I probably naturally gravitated to people who, who think this way um, because <laughs> I don't know, it means they're maybe of a, of, a bit, of a bit stronger of a moral cloth or something, but, or less materialistic. But my sense was that the major, um, the, the obstacle was actually love they didn't want to get married unless they loved the person. And in China, that's something of a new thing, right? Not their parents, their mothers probably didn't have the option to marry for romantic reasons, especially if they grew up, you know, during the Cultural Revolution. If you showed up at a Danwei work unit and you weren't married, there wasn't housing for single people. And so, you know, the head of your work unit might marry you off and that was it. And further back to their grandmothers, when Confucianism was much more prominent, having a daughter was considered you know, a, a tremendous waste of resources. It was someone that you had to raise and feed and clothe only to give away one day into mar in, in marriage. And she would then sort of become the indentured servant to her, her husband's family, and, and she wouldn't be able to help you as you were getting older. Um, there's a case I cite in the book of a father who was determined to be compensated for the pains of having raised a daughter um, while he was living, so with sizable compensation, but also with a very comfortable coffin because he wanted to continue to be compensated in the afterlife. Um, so, you know, there, there wasn't much romance going on. A lot of it was extramarital or, or whatever, but um, as, the, as far as the nature of how marriages are contracted, there wasn't really an option for romance. And so these women are kind of the first generations to have that choice. And they're rather sort of heroically sticking it out because this is something that's important to them. Yeah, Diane. Um, 
I'm surprised by that comment that they would marry for love because the extramarital affairs going on in China are rocket high. One of the main characters in the book is a mistress. <laughs> and I had great fun um, reporting on her. Um, they are. They absolutely are. And there are historical reasons for this. There are economic reasons for this. And um, mistresses, because they're not married, are actually also leftover women. And despite the fact that they may contribute resources to their family, which they do. I mean, I describe scenes in you know restaurants in Beijing where they like to, to, to gather, where they spend time with their mothers. And they're, you know, treating them to, to fancier meals. The, 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 the benefits of being a mistress are shared, not always generously with their families, but they are shared to a certain extent. Um, so it, there, there is that component uh, to, to romantic love in China, and that's certainly been one that has existed for a long time, all the way back to, you know, um, the days of the concubines in the Forbidden City. Um, but there are, you know, there's a growing population of women who don't want to be mistresses, and they also don't want to be cheated on, and so they're, they're looking for a different formula. Is the implication of the question that the relationship between the man and the mistress is based on romantic love? Um, so it was my impression that <coughs> the women weren't really marrying for love and just marrying for wealth because of the, extra, the high extramarital affairs that go on. And so they might as well just grab onto something if the love is so tenuous. Right. They wouldn't be getting married in that case. They would be. So actually, this is funny. It comes up a lot in conversation. Um, there are two types of mistresses in China. <laughs> there's an Arnai and there's a Shaosan. <laughs> now, the Arnai is the type of mistress who you just described. She's the materialistic one, who is after capital, connections, handbags, rent, a car, you name it. They're all different sorts of varieties. But then there's the Shaosan. And Shasan are very different, and they're very open in declaring how they're different because they find it offensive that people might imply that they are materialistic. They claim to be with the men that they're with because there's a romantic component to it, and it's not so much the money that's driving their attraction. Um, they actually have a holiday, which was two days ago, March 3rd. For the Shaosan. <laughs> and they, you know, they had an organization called the Association of Little Threes, and they would go online and they would discuss what it was appropriate to ask for. And just sort of the plight of being in love with someone who is probably never gonna leave his wife, and how to handle that. Um, so there are two, there are two types. And I mean, I guess the men who get themselves into these relationships maybe were pushed into a more transactional type of relationship, and they're not necessarily in love with their wives, and so there's this activity on the side. Um, but both certainly exist, as I've seen and, and have enjoyed observing. I'm wondering how your book would be different if you were Chinese. I mean, or the reverse, how is your book different because you're not Chinese? Uh, well, being a foreigner lets you say silly things. It's like a pass. You can ask, I guess you can ask more personal questions because you can sort of pull off the, oh, you know, being a foreigner sort of adds an extra element of, of curiosity to it, possibly. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly at the beginning, um, I had no intention of, of writing a book. I mean, like, as I said, I wasn't even planning on staying in China for very long. But I think... Um, it helped that I was foreign because, as I said earlier, this wasn't something that was being discussed very much. And women were curious what it was like outside of China. So they would say, well, you're from New York. Is it really like sex in the city? And so when you start having those conversations, it becomes an exchange. A lot of these conversations weren't really interviews with me, like firing off questions and, you know, very pointedly trying to, to figure out, you know, why is it that you're left over and how many times a day does your mother call you and what sort of ultimatums is she giving you? It was really just an exchange. And it was, it's a more, it was a lighter approach and I think it also helped. Um, it probably also helped that I wasn't, you know, a 45-year-old male reporter like most of the guys in China were, right? Most of the foreign correspondents, you, de you de do see many men. And it probably would have been a bit trickier for them to have the types of conversations that I was having just because, you know, the age difference, the gender difference, and all sorts of things. So, um, I mean, these women were my friends. They continue to be. And people ask me 
how they are today and I know exactly how they are today um, you know because we stay in touch and although the book is over their lives are not over so you know where they end off may not be where they are today um, and, and there's certainly people you know whose lives I will continue to follow because that's just I mean we're, we're friends at this point so it's a different approach. You said when you started out you didn't have in mind writing a book once you decided that you were writing a book did you tell them and did their openness um, change as a result? No, it didn't. I mean, they've all been very supportive and they all wonder why on earth it took me so long. <laughs> because I started this in 2010, right? So this has been a real labor of love. Um, and I, my answer to them is, you know, when you're a Peely reporter and uh, trying to get an agent and you don't even have that many bylines, never mind, you know, a major publishing house, it takes a while. And even, you know, from, from a, dra a draft of a book to it actually coming out, there are very long timelines for this in the United States. So they're excited that's, that it's coming out, even more excited that it's coming out in Chinese. They find it very funny that, you know, China can translate the book and publish it in seven months, and it takes three years in the U.S., but there you go. <laughs> the differences between the countries. Um, but no, it didn't, it didn't, you know, change their, their views at all. Um, and they all read the text before. You don't use real names, though. No. Names have so. been changed, yes. Um, some actually expressed a preference for using their real names, um, but for legal reasons, my publisher encouraged me not to, in case there were any changes. But they've all seen what's written about them, um, and it's just a funny way of documenting their stories and our friendship. Are any of the women you write about, um, have any of them been uh, to the United States or abroad to study, and, and do they have, you know, being exposed to Western culture? There were difference in terms of their, their viewpoint? Yes. Marriage and life? Yeah, so one of the main characters, um, June, uh, came here when she was in high school and she stayed and went to Yale and got her JD there. Um, so she's kind of your ultimate you know, leftover woman. She's very well educated. She comes from a well-to-do family. She was an only daughter. All those resources were poured into her. Um, and I remember when I met her, she had just come back from the US. And it was because she was facing tremendous pressure to get married. And bless you. And she's a very smart uh, woman who has always been very focused on books and achieving, right? And so she took this approach to finding a marriage partner. She kind of just deduced that although she'd never dated before, um, if she studied hard, you know, how to find a partner, she'd be able to do it well. And so one of, one of the first things she did was get herself onto Feichang Wurao, which at the time was an enormously popular dating show um, in China. And there's usually quite a long waiting list for Feichang Wurao, but she explained that they usually save one of the 12 spots, I think it's 12, for a very well-educated woman. And since she fit that bill, before she knew it, she was on a plane to Nanjing. And she just said that they dressed her up like a Victorian teddy bear. I mean, there were, you know, lots of makeup and lots of curls and lots of, um, lots of things that she otherwise wouldn't wear. She was very plain and very focused on books her entire life. So this came as quite a shock. Um, and she's on the show and she very quickly realized that this was a terrible way to try to find a partner. <laughs> and so um, when one of the candidates came on, I think he was like a break dancer or something. And as soon as he came out, all the women were like, eh, <laughs> like, this guy's poor. <laughs> we're not interested, right? And so she hit yes. And they ended up, you know, walking off together to My Heart Will Go On. And they shook hands behind stage and she was like, I'm out of here. Because they wouldn't let her leave. It was like a rule of the show that you needed to be on for a minimum of a few episodes. I'm revealing secrets about Fei Chang Wu I'm sorry, I'm taking away some of the magic. But um, she decided she needed to sort of readjust her approach. But she really was on a mission. I mean, she said, well, I'll go back to China now and I'll stay until I'm 30, after which I'm done. And if I still haven't found anyone, then I'll go back to the U.S because I probably have five more years of mileage. So I'll, you know, work on that. Um, and I won't tell you where she is now, but it really was, I mean, this was something that she felt like she needed to do. And she would study it and approach it as if it were, uh, as if it were, you know, uh, a task, something she needed to master. And you'll see in the book, um, 
I introduce her to Ivy, who is the mistress. And they're like a perfect match because, <laughs> because June is so smitten by how this woman with her very long legs, it's, her name is Ivy because it's, her legs are like trellises up which you could grow lots of ivy. Um, she's just smitten by the idea of how this woman could be such a seductress. She embodies all of the things that June never had and couldn't be. And on the other hand, um, Ivy is, is touched by meeting June because June is so well-educated and she's so sort of genuine and, and unfamiliar with things like infidelity and not willing to, to sort of enter relationships like that. And um, I, I won't say too much because it's a bit of a spoiler, but um, that really is how she approached it. I mean, living in the US was kind of just a plan B. If I don't find someone in China, I'll have to come back. And some of the more fun scenes to describe in the book were how she was essentially bipolar when she went on dates. If her mom had logged on to Shijijian, which is a popular dating platform in China, if her mom had logged onto this platform, created a dating profile for her, and started chatting with men on her behalf, which she did, um, and would say, okay, four o'clock on Sunday, this tea house, go. And June would kind of be like, okay, I was up until two clubbing in Beijing, and now I have to wake up and go meet this guy who I'm not interested in, but she would do. She describes how she's pretty much bipolar in the dating approach, right? When she goes on dates that are orchestrated by her parents, um, it's she's more buttoned up. You know, she'll wear a modest cardigan and she'll behave differently. Her father, I love that he did this, and it's also outrageous that he did it. But he told his very charismatic and very bright daughter that when on dates with a Chinese man, she should behave like the Mona Lisa. And. <laughs> She's nothing like the Mona Lisa. She has a huge laugh and a huge personality, and, and we got along tremendously well. And then she would describe how, you know, when she was on dates with maybe Chinese men who had studied abroad and were back in China or foreigners, there was a bit of cleavage. She would behave differently. She wouldn't be so worried about keeping her laugh to a titter. And so, you know, that, that, ex that exposure to, to being abroad certainly did play into how she was behaving um, on dates. Yeah, I'm Stella. I just want to say, I guess you could tell June coming back to the U.S. may not necessarily help her boss. I'm sure she studied the numbers already. Friends, I think over 90% of them are women, and we are all um, educated in the job, we own our own apartments. They think that's part of the problem. We're too independent. So if there is already a ch big chunk of us here, we're coming here. We Stop, don't mess it up further. <laughs> <laughs> Stay in China. <laughs> you should write a sequel leftover in the US. It's the same problem here as there. There are a few great books on that topic. Um, really? Spinster by Kate Bollock is one looking at a similar phenomenon here. Um, All the Single Ladies by Rebecca Traister is also, that's more politically focused and how um, single women in the US are an important part of the voting. Or, I mean, who decides presidents? We, we didn't really see that play out in this last election, but that's sort of the main, <laughs> the main argument of the book. So there are some, and, and ultimately what I like to argue is, you know, there are different terms for this. There's leftover in China, there's, um, you know, uh, New Year's noodles in, in, in Japan, there's hamona uh, solterona in a lot of Latin American countries. That means a lonely ham. That's not a very nice, a lonely ham, hamona solterona. It's not a very nice term either. And that was one of the most I guess the most heartening things to research about this book. I mean, when you get to China as a foreigner and as someone who doesn't know very much about China, you think, well, Chinese women must be so different. And they're not. Very quickly, I learned that although we came from a very different context, and they thought I was coming from Sex and the City world, and I thought they were coming from a Jane Austen novel. <laughs> um, you know, we, we had things to exchange on this topic. And that's sort of what brings this, you know, it's, it's very apparent to me that there are women in Beijing and Shanghai whose lives look a lot more like my life than women in Anhui or Hebei. Right? That's what globalization has done. And that's why it's such an important story, and especially between the US and China, because there's so much cross-pollination. There's so many women studying here. Um, I've met so many Chinese women in the process of you know, studying in New York, or living in New York, who are studying in New York. Columbia University's full of them. NYU, my alma mater. The journalism program, I mean, if you go to their documentary film fest, 
70% of the films are documentaries about China. And it's wonderful to see. I mean, women who used to work at the same television station that I did as interns have asked for recommendations, and they're studying here, and they've graduated. And when you talk to some of the younger ones, they say, oh, you lived in China. What did you do? Oh, I researched leftover women. Oh, I'm a leftover woman. And it's like, you're 19. How is that possible? <laughs> oh, but I will be. I just know. Like, I'm, I'm headed on that path, which is why when I said earlier, maybe not as articulately, like, it's not a stigma. It's something that women sort of willingly identify as with, because it's just like, I'm just going to put it out there. Um, you know, mom, dad, like, prepare to have a leftover daughter, because this is, you know, you've raised me in ways that sort of are conducive <laughs> to not settling down as, as quickly as you would want me to. Um, so it plays out in both places. And it's certainly a, a more global phenomenon than I think we most mostly realize. Jess. Um, I'm Jessica. I work here at the committee. I have um, two questions, but first a comment. I, back in October, I took a delegation of Chinese diplomats who are based here in the US around the Northeast for two weeks. And 13 out of the 14 were men. And they actually, their goal, after meeting me, finding out that I'm 34 and not married was to put me on that dating show. Great time we're wrong. Teach them a lot about dating and what it means to be single. That I'm not, you know, trying to like, you know, right. social every night type of thing. And that there's a lot of good that comes out of it too. But anyway, my question is, um, and I know it runs the gamut in the U.S., so I don't want to, I don't want this to sound stereotypical, but since those, these women who are not married and I, you know, they're going on dates, they're dating. How how are how have these women talked about um, their sex lives? And I'm guessing their parents. They know they're not married. Right. Are they assuming that they're virgins? Are they just you're dating and that's it? And we're not going to talk about it. It's just something that happens. And we're going to pretend it's not there. I'm just curious, kind of the level. Um, um, I guess that attitude has changed. I know from 2010 to now, there could be different views about it. But I'm just curious, kind of the stories that you heard and attitudes about that. Certainly. I mean, there's very little sex education in China in schools. Um, and I think there are even fewer parents who willingly bring this up. And this is one of the major problems, right? Um, young people are having sex. And there's not, I mean, it's not very difficult to get an abortion in China, um, but when that becomes a preventative measure for, you know, it's, it's, it's a form of contraception, that's, that's a problem. Um, there's also very little education against or around sexual harassment, which we've seen as sort of China jumped into the Me Too movement with its own version, which I don't know if you've seen, but it was Me Too. Mi fan the me and tu the tu because me too zai zhongguo the actual hashtag was censored. So a very enterprising Chinese student sitting at the University of British Columbia, who I had the tremendous pleasure of interviewing for three hours on the phone a couple of weeks ago, explained to me why she started the rice bunny movement. <laughs> um, but to get back to your question, I mean, when I met some of these women, they were virgins, and I'm not sure if my influence. <laughs> um, <laughs> contributed to their <laughs> clearly uh, yeah I was yeah I always wanted to be Samantha anyway um, I'm not sure how much my influence played into it but I think it was just a matter of of growing up right and just sort of realizing that actually this idea of of waiting for marriage was seeming less and less likely because marriage was seeming less and less likely but I don't think it's something that's openly discussed and in China, something that several women have also said to me, it's actually quite hard to even go to the gynecologist as an unmarried woman. Mm -hmm. There are many women who will just lie and say that they're married because you may get some raised eyebrows if you're going to see it. It depends on the hospital and which city and, and whatnot, but you might get some raised eyebrows because it's expected like, well, you know, if you're not married, you're not having sex, so why would you come to the gynecologist? I mean, there are a million reasons why you would, but China is still a very traditional society in that regard. It's certainly changing, but I would say those changes are on the DL. You mentioned the Latin American Spanish equivalent of leftover. Now you're reporting from Cuba. Are there any parallels? Is it completely different? Good Lord, no. And that's what's so wonderful. <laughs> it's this wildly new place. Um, and it's, it's wild to be in a place where there's constant sunshine, something that was missing in Beijing, <laughs> and ubiquitous reggaeton music. Um, not something that I heard very often in China either. 
But um, sneaky little me, I have found the China angle because I can't help myself um, to figure out, you know, I, I wanted to, to see where the parallels were. And it wasn't very hard. Um, you walk around Havana and there are plenty of Chinese businessmen primarily um, doing business there. And I have made it my business to walk up to them and ask them what they're doing. Um, <laughs> because in Spanish or Chinese? In Chinese. Um, and there was actually one time I was, um, I was at, at a swimming pool and I saw a Chinese man doing laps in the pool and I was on a lounger, which don't tell my editor that I do this while I'm in Cuba, but sometimes you need sun. Um, and I saw him doing laps. And I actually got off the lounger, got into the pool, and like swam up next to him. And I was like, Ni hao! Ni zai kuba zuo And he was very confused, because he still had his goggles on and like wasn't seen properly. Um, but we had a great chat about how he's selling tractors and other heavy duty material to the Cuban government. And he was very positive on, on Cuba, mainly because his branch of um, uh, his brand, sorry, he was selling buses. The Yutong buses are now becoming more and more common in, in um, Cuba. And so he was getting paid from Gaesa, which is the military arm of Cuba. And they're the part of the government that has money to pay people that they owe money to. So he was quite pleased. And he was like, right? like the seafood here is wonderful. And it's good to be in the sun and I can swim laps. But then um, two Chinese gentlemen that I somewhat accosted at an ice cream parlor had a very different view on, on, on doing business in Cuba. Um, they had the misfortune of selling things like tractors and heavy-duty materials to the government, and they were not going through the, through the military because the military looks over all things related to tourism, and these buses were being sold for the tourism market, and so it was Gaesa paying for them. Um, the Cuban government would pay for things like tractors. And they would say, ah, Cuba, And so it was a very different story. Um, and one of my favorite things uh, about Cuba these days, there's so many things that I love, but this, this cross-pollination this, this cross pollination between Cuba and China is, is sort of my, I, I was able to wean myself off of China by finding a sort of new communist fascination, um, because originally I thought, you know, Cuba got my eye because in 2015, when diplomatic relations were restored between the U.S. and Cuba, I thought, wow, this is 1979 China. You have, you know, a, a socially managed or a centrally managed economy that is going to open up to the world. And, you know, the private sector is going to be given greater reign and we're going to see some, some serious economic growth. That didn't happen. China's economic model is, is very difficult to replicate, and, and Cuba's government also didn't want to do that. But at the time, for me, it was a way to sort of travel back in time and spend time in a country that was going through a period in China that I didn't get to experience, but that I read a ton about. It's the start of the economic reforms and also the one-child policy, so very relevant to things that I'd worked on. Um, it's a very different story, but the relationship with Cuba, between Cuba and China is an important one. Right now, China is one of the few countries that has the coffers to be able to bankroll um, what, you know, what Cuba needs. Cuba imports 80% of its food because they don't have tractors and machinery. They also have this very pernicious weed called marabu that covers 20% of the island, so it makes uh, it makes growing growing crops quite difficult. And so it, it depends on China for very generous credit as far when it comes to food, when it comes to being able to buy these materials. I was actually talking to a Cuban chef. Um, in Cuba, there are no wholesale markets. So chefs have to go to supermarkets um, like we do to buy their goods, which means that you know chefs can come in and, and pay a higher price. And so the goods, the price for, for goods at the supermarket are, are very high um, for, for average people. But he was saying, you know, there, there are more and more Chinese products showing up because China is one of the few countries that's willing to put up with waiting two years to get paid uh, by the Cuban government. And so I was like, so is this, we, we're going to see like Cuban-Chinese fusion <laughs> by necessity, right? Because these are the sorts of products that we're getting. Um, and it's, it's also, I mean, one of my favorite things to do is to see Chinese people and Cuban people working side by side. Um, so there's a restaurant being built in the center of Havana um, near a famous place called Fabrica del Arte. Um, it's called Peking Restaurant. And it looks like a Sihuyuan. 
it's a magnificent building that I can pull up a picture of later if you want to see photos. It's not in my usual repertoire, but um, and it's also along a lake, so it feels like whole high. And I walked past one day and I was like, whoa, what's this? So I just, it wasn't open yet, but of course I just kind of walked in and, and I, I saw Chinese people, so I started talking to them. And <laughs> they, were, they were architects and engineers who had been brought over from Beijing. And the fact that, well, the Zhongwen Yuyan, Beijing the Koyan, helped me a lot um, because they were quite surprised that I walked in. And they started telling me um, that, you know, this was part of a larger project that involved golf courses and hotels. And this was the first piece of it. And this restaurant was going to be where Chinese officials and Cuban officials would, you know, sign deals and, and do these sorts of things. And this restaurant was supposed to open seven months ago. And I know that this Chinese company is paying $30,000 a month in rent for the building. Dollars. Dollars, which in Cuba is astronomical. And there's no way they'll ever make it back even when the restaurant is up and running. But they will be serving Beijing Kaya and they will be Cuban ducks, I've confirmed. <laughs> because there's actually not a shortage of ducks. There's a shortage of a lot of things, but there are ducks. So they, there's a Kaya bar, which they showed me. Um, but you know, it was mainly Chinese engineers and architects and Cuban workers, right, who were actually, you know, who were doing the hard labor of, of getting the restaurant into shape. And I was speaking to one of my main contacts was kind of the interpreter, who is the government liaison. He is Chinese, but he speaks perfect Spanish. And he's the one who sort of, he's the go-between between the inspectors from the Cuban government who come in and make sure that everything's up to speed. And of course, it's never up to speed. And they always find a flaw. And there's, you know, you need to go up into the cupola and take down a fire alarm because it wasn't installed properly. And there are just tons and tons of delays. Um, but it's so much fun to see, you know, the Chinese engineers interacting with the Cuban workers because they can't understand one another, but they find a way to communicate. And sometimes they get very frustrated with one another because, you know, I'll speak to, to the Chinese engineers and architects and they'll say, wow, Cuba, I mean, for, for, for a Chinese person who is used to speed and, you know, access to investment and just buildings going up very quickly, Cuba's the polar opposite because it requires infinite patience. And so, you know, I was asking, like, how do the workers interact? And this interpreter said, well, Cubans now know what shabi means <laughs> because they're called this. I don't know if you need to bleep me out, but you know they're they're called this. <laughs> <Just swamp trends. laughs> and and um, well, Chinese workers know what certain expletives mean in Spanish because they're called this by the Cuban workers. So they have their way of communicating. I mean, I think generally it's pretty congenial. Um, but it's fascinating to see them work together because the Chinese want to get things done. And you know the Cubans are are under a little bit less pressure, so it's been great fun for me to report on on you know that that this this power this power that China has right that it that it has largely because the U.S. has stepped back as far as diplomatic relations. These are deals and and things that the U.S. could have had if we had taken a wiser stance when it came to you know Cuban diplomacy, but we have not. And there are lots of goodies that China is going to scoop up as a result. Well, with that, we have come to the end of our time. Please join me in thanking Roseanne for a very stimulating and very different talk. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.